of God, we are a, a diverse family, renewed and reconciled together with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Because of the love of Jesus, we are compelled to share his message of reconciliation and renewal so that everyone in our community would experience the love of Jesus and be empowered to follow him into eternal life. And a short way of saying is that we are working together for the reconciliation and renewal of all people in Jesus. And that's kind of going to be our motto. That's our tagline. That's what we're about. That's how everything we do is organized um, for that aim. And we've looked at these things called vision outcomes. So flowing from that mission, what are, what are the outcomes that we want to see? What's the fruit that we want to see produced? What is, um, what are, uh, what is the vision? Uh, and, and how does it manifest it tangibly? And so we've looked at four things. The fifth thing is gospel saturation. And we have a line in there, in there developing leaders that would go out and start new expressions of God's church in other places. And in order to support that, what I want to do is, is look at a couple of passages. We'll read the scripture as we uh, think about how the church formed, how was it started, what did God use to build his church. And uh, if you would stand with me, I'm going to read Acts uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 8. Sometimes... I think following Jesus should be like sitting on a down-filled couch in front of the fireplace with a large cup of hot chocolate filled with marshmallows. Just me, Stephanie, my wife, our Bible, um, and the fireplace in front of us warming us in the glow. And, and I just picture myself looking into Stephanie's eyes gleaming and, and, and us both remarking, how comfortable is it following Jesus? And then Jesus knocks at the door of my feathery dream and says things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What I'd like to explore this morning is, is what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Not what we'd like it to mean. Not even what maybe we've taught, been taught that it means. What does Jesus himself say about following Jesus? Or to ask it another way, what, what is our purpose in following Jesus? In order to answer this question, I want to start off by looking at um, God's purpose. Does God exist? Does God exist to make each and every one of us happy and comfortable? Is that God's plan? Is that God's purpose? Or is there something bigger, something grander, something more awesome, something more complex and attractive than just our individual comfort and happiness? That's the question I want to explore. And I'm going to ask three questions. What is God's plan for the world? Who accomplishes God's plan? And then 
how is God's plan accomplished? Those are kind of the three questions I'm going to, that'll frame this message. The first question, what, what is God's plan for the world? I want to start off by answering this question by saying what God's plan is not. God's plan is not immediate peace and comfort. God's plan for the world is not immediate peace and comfort. Um, turn with me, if you will, to um, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 51. It will be up on the screen as well. <coughs> Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This is probably not one of the most popular things that Jesus has said in his lifetime. Yet he said this. In fact, if you keep reading, Jesus says that even families will be split up. How many of you have had a division or tension in your family based on differences in belief of Jesus? Some most probably what Jesus says is true that that Jesus himself and his person his message caused division it caused conflict it caused strife now I hope that that you might be questioning in your head well doesn't doesn't Jesus speak favorably of peace Does, didn't Jesus come to bring peace isn't that isn't that why we, we celebrate Christmas? He's, he's, he's come to give us peace, right? And, and, I, and I hope you ask that because there are verses where Jesus does talk about giving us peace. And I want to look at one of those verses, and I hope that this will bring out a, a clarification or a distinction in different types of peace that, that Jesus is talking about. Uh, I'm going to look at John uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if you stop after the first sentence, you might be unclear what Jesus is talking about. It sounds like something you would maybe have on, on your coffee mug. Uh, Jesus has come. He, he wants us to have peace. Like, that's a good thing. That's what we think of. That's what we want. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but in this world, you'll have tribulation. Now, when he says tribulation... I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like the opposite of peace. Like tribulation sounds like conflict and pain. And unless Jesus is talking about something different when he's talking about peace, it doesn't make sense for to follow up with peace with 
tribulation. Jesus does want us to have peace right now, but his peace, the peace that he's talking about is not defined by our circumstances. That's, that's the point that he's making. It's almost like he's immediately addressing what they might make the mistake of assuming his peace is about. Does that make sense? So he's saying, I've come to give you peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. In other words, don't make the mistake of thinking that my peace means no tribulation, that my peace means no conflict, that my peace means no pain in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation. And then he, he doesn't stop there. He continues, but take heart. In other words, I know when you hear that, you might be dismayed. You might be upset. You might be sad. Wait a minute. I thought you were telling me peace, and now you're telling me there's going to be tribulation, which means in my mind, as I hear that, that's pain, that's conflict, that's stress. That, that's not sitting on the couch with a hot chocolate full of marshmallows looking at the flyer. That, looking at the flyer. That's something different. He says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. Now, I'm not going to unpack fully what that means. That's going to be for two weeks from now when we talk about peace in full. But, but Jesus is saying that, that the peace he's talking about is different than just our immediate circumstances in this world. There is a future world. There is a future kingdom that, that will be hot chocolate, that will be pillows, that will be comfort, that will be no more tears. But that's, that's, another, that's another sermon. What I wanted to highlight here is that God's plan, God's primary purpose in this life is not our immediate peace and comfort. It's not a pain-free life. It's not a conflict-free zone. And I think, if we're honest, many of us wish God's plan for us was immediate peace and comfort. Right? We don't like conflict. We don't like peace. We don't like, or we don't like uh, uh, pain. When we don't like stress, right? Just, just give me pillows and puppy dogs. That's a nice thing. And one of the things I'm realizing in marriage is that conflict is, is inevitable. If you care. I suppose if you don't care, then there's no conflict. If someone flips you off on the freeway or honks at you, you might be upset for a minute or two. But it's not going to ruin your day. But if it's your spouse who's upset at you, it might not just be a bad day. It might be a bad week or longer, depending on how serious the conflict is. Premises, though, if we care. If we care, there will be conflict. If we care, there will be pain. And I think some of us have, has been, have been told a lie about following Jesus. There's poor Bible teachers out there that will say, if you follow Jesus, God's plan for you is peace. And by that, they mean that conflict will go away, that your pain will go away, that you'll have plenty of wealth and good health, and, and just everything in life will seem to go your way if you follow Jesus. And that's not in the Scriptures. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. doesn't mean he's not there with you. 
doesn't mean that there isn't some sense of inner peace and hope that, that our circumstances can't take away from us. But he does say that the circumstances in life may not look like the peace that you think it would be. There are many things that God's plan is not, including immediate peace and comfort. It's not also primarily punishment and judgment. God's plan is not, uh, not primarily physical healing and restoration. God's plan is not just to take a wait-and-see approach and see how things work out. God's, what is God's plan? God's plan is to bring life to the whole world through the death of his son, Jesus. That's God's plan. God's plan is to bring life to the whole world through the death of his son, Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. There's, lo- there's lots of anecdotes, there's lots of story, there's lots of history, there's lots of persons and characters in the Bible, but when you boil it down to the core message That's what all of Scripture is about. Jesus says that all Scripture is talking about Him. And He is the embodiment of the work that God has planned to do. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Or navigate in your apps. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. It will be up on the screen as well. God's plan is to bring life through death. This is Peter, uh, uh, a uh, snippet of uh, a sermon that Peter was giving. The the first sermon in the Christian church, uh, as it were. And Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter affirms that it was God's plan to kill Jesus. This originated, Jesus' death on the cross originated in the mind of God. This was not man forcing God's hand. This was not a spontaneous plan just concocted in the, in the midst of like things that just went totally awry and totally unexpected, God had planned this according to his wisdom. And it's in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That first verse, in verse 21, Peter is quoting from Joel, the prophet Joel, that there will be a day when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and Peter's equating that day to Jesus' coming and his death and his resurrection. This is the central event in all of Scripture. This is the event that the prophets look forward to. And now Peter on the other side is saying, this is it. 
This is the day where Jesus has come and, and you've seen him and, and God has attested to him through signs, through miracles, through wonders. You've seen all that he did and yet you still crucified him. This is your savior. This is the one upon whom if you call upon his name, you will be saved. In Luke chapter 12, the verse we just looked at before, Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That's, it's a euphemism. He's talking about his death. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In a sense, these aren't happy thoughts. These aren't peaceful thoughts. These are distressful thoughts as he looks at what God has put him on earth to do to die for sins that he didn't commit. Not just to die, but to be killed for sins that he didn't commit. And not just to be killed, but to be killed gruesomely, brutally, painfully, humiliatingly on the cross. It was a painful way to die, but even more so, not even more so, but equally so, it was humiliating to die on the cross that way. You were alive, naked, hanging on the cross for hours with people, some who loved you, your family, but most people who would just look in mockery and spitting and condemnation. This was a distressful thing for Jesus to be going through. And yet, he believed it was worth it. He believed it was worth it to go through the distress because on the other side of death, many would believe by calling upon the name of Jesus. He saw a greater glory past his death. And as Peter affirms, God, this is, uh, let me actually quote it. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's plan is to bring life to the whole world through the death of a son. That is God's plan. Now, the, the second big question that I have is who accomplishes God's plan? Who accomplishes God's plan? Now, you might think, You've heard the saying, if you want something done well, you, you do it yourself. Is that God's perspective? If you want something done well, you do it yourself? I'm going to answer that question yes and no. And I'll tell you why. Who accomplishes God's plan? Uh, let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, in this, when we look at church, church could also be thought of as, as the people of the new kingdom that, that, that Christ is ushering in. And, and in this verse, who is doing that? You can answer. Who is building the church? Jesus is building the church. He says, I will. This, that's Jesus speaking. I will build the church. And so, yes, God is the one who is executing his plan. God is building his church. God is building his kingdom. It is Jesus who is doing it. But that's not all there is to the story. Why? Because Jesus is not going door to door. Well, he started going door to door, metaphorically. He walked around, he recruited disciples, but at some point, Jesus died and he went back to the Father. And Jesus today is not going door to door, knocking on people's doors to, to ask them to become, to follow him and become his disciples. So Jesus is not doing it in that sense. How is he doing it? How does Jesus choose to build his church? If we read later in Matthew, you go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Before Jesus goes to be with the Father, Jesus says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Basically, Jesus has walked with his disciples for three years or so. And at the end of those three years, he's killed, he rises again, and he says, this is what I'm leaving you with to do. Okay? We've been making disciples. Now you're going to do it. I'm going to go, and you're going to do it. Now, I was just thinking, it's kind of, it's counterintuitive, I think, to how we would do things in our society. I was thinking, uh, what if you know, the Lakers just acquired LeBron James, probably the best basketball player in the NBA right now. Like, they acquired him to play and help them win a championship. Now, imagine if LeBron James, after three games, says, all right, I've showed you how to do it. Now I'm going to sit on the bench, and you're going to go win the championship. Los Angeles would be in an uproar if that happened. Like, we... we like, you're the best player. Why would the best player step off the side and, and just let the team win the championship without the best player? Jesus is like the best disciple maker in the history of disciple makers. Why would he choose that time, just when they're getting started, to, to leave that to his disciples to do the disciple making? And the big and strange idea is that God chooses, God chooses to use people to help accomplish the greatest plan in the universe. He doesn't have to. 
He could knock door to door. He could personally secure every single follower that he wanted. And we could just be on the sidelines. We could be in the grandstands just watching Jesus do his work. And yet Jesus chooses to involve us in the game, if you will, of disciple making. Jesus brings us into the game. It's counterintuitive, but he asks us to participate. And notice, it's a glo- it's the, 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 the goal or the plan of God is global. He says, make disciples of all nations. All nations. This all, in, in today's world, that would be not necessarily just political nations, but think in terms of like all tribes, all ethnicities, all tongues. Like everywhere there is people, God is wanting to make followers, to make disciples of him. It's global. It's expansive. It's a bigger vision than just our individual comfort, than just our individual households, than just our me and mine. It's, it's an it's a, it's a outward perspective that expands as far as there is people. Jesus basically says the same thing in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's like these rings of further outward geography that, that God is saying, I want you to cover as my disciples to, to make disciples. Now, why does God choose to use the church as his means of spreading the gospel? It's an interesting question, one that I thought about. On the one hand, elsewhere in Scripture, God says, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, he says that uh, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Which puts a picture that, that begins to frame or, or, or I think bring meaning to understanding the ways in which we're called to, to pursue this mission that God has for us. If we're the body of Christ, and then as a, as a whole, as a church, and individually members of it, then, then we are essentially Jesus' hands and feet as we go forth with this good news, with this message that, that Jesus has died for the sins of the world and that anyone who calls upon his name may be saved. We're entrusted with this, as Paul writes elsewhere, this ministry of reconciliation. And so as we, as we go forward, we make disciples, we, Jesus actually is going with us. If we complete what, what Jesus said in Matthew 28, he says at the end, Behold, I am, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's both and. God is accomplishing his work on the one hand, and we're also accomplishing his work because God is with us as we are the hands and feet of Jesus with his message. Now, why does God do it that way? I don't know the answer, honestly. I I don't know the answer specifically why God does it this way. But I suspect it has to do with how we relate to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you learn more by watching or by participating? Do you learn more by being in the stands 
or do you learn more by playing the game? I remember um, my first real fight that I was in. Actually, my only fight I was ever in. Middle school. Okay, now, I loved martial arts. I read martial arts books. I watched martial arts movies. I played Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. So I was ready. And I remember, I think I was in seventh grade, and, and, and there was this, this kid that, that we just didn't get along. And one day, I, I forget exactly what happened, but uh, it was a fight. And he, was, and he was out to get me. I was out to get him. I said, all right, remember, do that kick move. And so I did the kick move. I was like, oh, that's going to get him. And he grabbed my foot. <laughs> it's like, I'm not supposed to do that. <laughs> I was like, you're supposed to just like block, and I'm supposed to like kick again. And, but he grabbed it, and all of a sudden, like, I'm in a struggle, and I'm wrestling, and I'm like trying to hit him on his back. And, and it, the fight lasted all of maybe 10 or 15 seconds, but it felt like an eternity before a gym teacher came and rushed and just slammed us down. I remember running back to class, and uh, the thing that I remember the most from that is fighting is intensely exhausting. And, and I would watch movies and see it, and you know, it seemed like fight scenes could last five and ten minutes, and so I just didn't know until I actually got into a fight, and I was like, this is different than what I read about. It, there's, in life, there's no substitution for experience. There's just not. You can, you can read about a lot of stuff, and you can, it can be helpful, and you can learn, you can watch things, but there's, there's no substitution for real experience. And I think that's what Jesus is doing when he says, I want you in the game. I want you there with me making disciples because I want you to experience this. Isn't that what Jesus did when he, he didn't just come and orchestrate things from above zap things, you go here, you go here. He came down and he walked with us. He became flesh. He, he, he talked with us. He, he spoke with us. He slept with us. He, he taught us. He was a friend. He was personal. I think God wants us. God invites us with him on his mission because God is a personal God. I think we experience more, we learn more about who Jesus is when we walk with him in the mission that God has given us to make disciples. What is making disciples? I've said that a lot, and I want to start to unpack that. Make disciples. I, honestly, I don't like the term. <laughs> I don't like it, because I don't think you use disciples in almost any other context other than the Christian church. Yet, it's there in the Bible. Make disciples. So what does that mean? Jesus explains. Baptizing people and teaching people all that Jesus commanded them. That's making disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but by itself, that's, that's not super helpful to me. I have this notion that I should be making disciples. Like, that's what Jesus says. I want to I follow Jesus. I'm a believer. I want, he says I should be making disciples, so I should make disciples. Let me go do that. Okay, baptizing and teaching them everything that Jesus command, commanded. 
seems like there's a step missing to me. It seems like there's a step missing. I mean, surely I'm not supposed to go down the street to Safeway and just grab someone and baptize them. I don't know. I mean, you tell me. It's, I don't know if I should just grab someone, throw them in the water, and say, I'm baptizing you, I'm making you a disciple. Probably not. Or if I'm at Taco Bell ordering a beefy Frito burrito, I don't think I'm going to say, excuse me, I would like a beefy Frito burrito. And by the way, you should love your neighbor as yourself. I'd be like, excuse me? Sorry, I'm just making you a disciple. There's got to be something in between that and making disciples and teaching and baptizing. And, and for me, and, and what I hope, I hope some of you find this helpful too, is, is just a word difference. And the word that we see in, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to me makes all the difference and let's read through that verse again but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the end of the earth that word witness witness you like a witness in in a in a, in a court setting is someone who is just telling what they saw and where they were and what happened. To me, that's very accessible. Like, I get that. I understand that. Oh, I'm a witness of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, what did Jesus do for me? When did he do it for me? How did he do that for me? Like, I know the answers to those questions. I can, if someone were to put me on trial and ask me, okay, well... What did Jesus do for you? Well, when I was five, my mom told me about Jesus and told me that I could be saved from my sins. Like, and I prayed to God, and he did. And, and, and since then, I've had this hope that, that, that I have a destiny with God in eternity, and I can't explain it, but no matter what I go through, it seems like God is there with me, and God has never left me. And that... The things that I used to be really sinful or really bad about, God, I, I, something's different's happened. I'm, I'm different in ways that I can't explain other than the power of God working in my life. That's, that's called being a witness. It's, it doesn't require a theological degree. It doesn't require something super complex. It's just explaining what happened. It's, it's, it's a much... I hope you feel it's a much lighter burden. And I, I feel that sometimes we've taken these words like mission and making disciples, and we haven't done a good enough job unpacking what it means. And so they feel like weights and they feel like burdens on us. Oh, we've got we've to do the right thing. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to do the right thing because I just sinned like two minutes ago, and I'm not sure if I'm good enough. And, and I think... <laughs> I think we would do well to remember uh, what Jesus says. He says this, Come to me, all who, are lab who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not intending to place on us heavy burdens that we can't carry. Jesus has freed us. Jesus wants to continue to remind us that it's his death that accomplishes the work. 
Harambe, we don't convert people. And I don't know if you've been told that or taught that when Jesus says make disciples, he doesn't say convert people. And by that, I mean Jesus doesn't say we are the ones changing people's hearts. He says be a witness to what Jesus has done. His message in and of itself is powerful enough to change hearts. We are called to be a witness of that. What does that look like in the everyday stuff of life? I have a friend who is a believer and also a sales manager. And uh, he, he was telling me the story about a sales associate of his who was normally a, a really high performer. But she was going through some tough things in life. And as a result, her performance was definitely suffering. And, and she knew that, as in sales, um, making numbers is really important in sales. And, and she, knowing that, sort of proactively reached out to her manager to try to soften the blow a little bit by saying, I understand if you need to go in a different direction. But this sales manager, who was a believer, said, I understand you're going through a rough time. Your performance doesn't bother me that much. You're good. You have a place here. And she didn't hear it. I mean, she heard it, but she didn't believe it. She didn't believe it because in every other job she's been at, if a sales manager were to say that, it was not too long after before they were out the door, right? It just, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have come across as authentic and genuine. And so they went back and forth a couple times and finally the sales manager said this, look, you know I'm a Christian, right? And then all of a sudden it made sense for her. Because what he was trying to do was connect his identity in Christ to his intention. And once she saw that intention of what he was saying map up to something bigger than who he was, it made sense to her. Now, I heard that story and I thought, this is a really great example of what it means to be a witness. I could have told a story about I went to Japan or I went to India and shared Christ with this Japanese lady for two hours and she accepted Christ a day later. That's a true story. That really happened. But that's not all what being a witness is about. People are at different places in their journey. And we meet people at different places in their journey. And we're not called, being, making disciples is not always about just meeting that person at the right point in time where we see them come to faith. Sometimes we're just planting a seed early on in their journey. Just a little seed of witnessing, hey, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm not bothered because I, because my identity's in Christ. I'm not bothered by your performance. And that little seed of that little message, God will work and someone else will come along and sow another seed and someone else will come along and sow another seed, a witness of what, of the power of Jesus, what he can do to change people's lives. And so that we don't have the burden of feeling we have to convert people. We trust that his message is powerful enough to do that. And so what I want us to hear this morning is we think about gospel saturation, the good news being witnessed to where we're at 
wherever we're at, if we're in India, if we're here in Renton, or if we're in Skyway, or Kent, or SeaTac, or Des Moines, wherever we are, we can be who God has made us to be and just be transparent in what that is and trust that God is working in and through that to accomplish his goals. And I want to conclude with this final encouragement. When Jesus gives the disciples their last instructions before he heads off, Jesus is saying, I'm, not, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving with you the Holy Spirit. So wait for him. He's going to empower you. That group was about 120 people. And, and it's, it's a really bold statement that Jesus is saying in verse 8 when he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Like he's speaking of a very large movement of what's about to occur. But if you were there in that moment, I wouldn't see it. Uh, 120 people, your Savior just got killed. I don't know. I'm not betting on that horse. But now here we are, and billions of people have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, and God has been faithful to save them. What God has said came true. God has guaranteed it. We worship a God who is true to his word and who is powerful enough to accomplish it, and he chooses to use his people as part of, of that plan. And so I want to encourage us this morning, you know, all of us who are believers are believers because of someone's witness. This is the work that God does. He is doing it. Even if you can't see all the ultimate fruit on the day-to-day basis, in our regular day-to-day stuff of life, our regular moment-by-moment Obedience and walking with the Spirit, even in our disobedience, even despite our disobedience, God's grace is sufficient and He's doing this work. And I want to encourage us as Harambe to engage in this work, to see our lives as a witness of the work that God is doing in and through us. That, that Harambe would be a place that would proclaim His good news in, in Renton and in Seattle and in Washington and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your very true word. Thank you, Lord, that we can see your promises fulfilled. I thank you, Father, for all of the men and women in this room who have a relationship with you, who, whose lives have been changed by you. I thank you, Father, for all of the people who have gone before us our parents, our friends, aunts and uncles, grandmothers and grandpas who have been faithful to be a witness of your good news to us in our lives. Lord, we owe them a debt of gratitude for their faithfulness and ultimately your faithfulness. So Father, would you help us to Help us to be your witnesses because we are if we have believed in your name. 
Encourage us in your gospel. Encourage us in your good news. Free us from guilt associated with feeling we have to convert people. And help us, Lord, just to speak the truth about what you've done in our lives. Father, we thank you for your help. We thank you that you've left us your spirit to empower us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we